Okay. All right, here, we're going to have round two. One more question for each section. Are you ready? Okay. Section one, here's your question. What famous TV personality endured an abusive childhood and was fired from her job as a television reporter because she was, quote, unfit for TV? You got it. For Winfrey, good job. All right, section two, center section. This author was a struggling single mother on welfare and faced 12 rejections from publishers for her book before it was sold for a mere $4,000 and was turned into an incredibly successful film series for children. Yes, good job. And what was the name of the book she wrote? Harry Potter. Good job. All right, now, last question for section three. What famous scientist didn't speak until he was four years old or read until he was seven? He was expelled from school and his teacher described him as, quote, mentally slow, unsociable, and forever adrift in his foolish dreams. Who would that be? Yes, Albert Einstein. All right. Now, what do all these people have in common? Well, they learned how to survive failure. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have missed, and you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you missed two or more questions? Didn't know the answer. Do you realize that you just failed a quiz on failure? And that raises a very important question. How do you respond to failure in your life? And this is an important question because we fail in all kinds of ways. Sometimes you have this goal or this dream that you want to achieve and you just fail to achieve it. Other times you might experience a business failure or an academic failure in school. It could be a relational failure. It could be a moral failure. There's all these forms of failure. Now, one of the ways that people fail, one of the arenas in which people fail, is the arena of sports. Anybody here ever had a loss or a failure playing sports? All right, I want to show you a video clip. This is from one of my favorite films. It's called Friday Night Lights. How many of you have seen this? And it's toward the end of the game. There are two high school football teams that are competing for the state championship. And it's down to the final couple of seconds. And one team is going to experience the thrill of victory. And the other team is going to experience what? The agony of defeat. Let's take a look.
we all know that failure is a very painful and also a very powerful experience. Take a look at this question on your outline. It says, how can I survive and even thrive when I experience failure? And church, this is a question that really goes to the heart of the gospel message. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. About who? About Jesus. And I want us to do this. I want us to put our gospel glasses on this morning and look at this topic of failure from God's perspective. So let's do that, and let's begin with this observation um, that will help us deal with failure in our lives. Remember that who fails? Yeah, everybody fails. Everybody fails. Now, we experience failure in a lot of different ways, but right now I want to focus on one area of failure, moral failure. And this is the idea that God has given us commands. He's given us these, um, these laws, if you will, to live by that are for our benefit, for our good. And the fact is that nobody keeps God's commands perfectly. And Jesus summed it up this way. He said, listen, here's the most important command that God has given us, that we would love him, our Father in heaven, with all of our heart and mind and strength and soul. And the second commandment is similar to it, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the fact is, nobody does that perfectly. And the Bible reminds us of this. The Bible says in James, we all stumble in many ways. And this verse from the book of Ecclesiastes, there is not a single person in all the earth who's always good and never sins. I was thinking this week about a t-shirt that my daughter Elizabeth wore around the house when she was just a little girl. She was probably three years old. And it was bright yellow and it had two words, nobody's perfect. And she would walk up to me and look at me with her big blue eyes and say, Daddy, not even you. And isn't that true? I mean, we know this. One of the classic verses in the Bible is Romans 3.23, and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. And I was thinking about that verse when I watched the, the film clip that you just saw, because despite our best efforts, no matter how hard we try to get to this goal line of perfect obedience and love and trust for God, we fall short. We fail. And think about this. The entire message, the entire ministry of Jesus Christ was directed toward people who had what? People who had failed. The entire ministry of Boynton Beach Community Church, our message is directed toward what kind of people? People who failed, like us. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, I didn't come to call the morally successful, I came to call people who are moral failures, sinners. And Jesus said this, I came to call sinners to repentance. This idea that we're walking away from God and that what we need to do is turn around and walk toward God. And often that's what failure can do. God can use failure to get our attention and turn our hearts and our lives back toward him. See, the question that Jesus was essentially asking people is not, have you failed? But what are you going to do with your failure? And that brings us to this second statement on your outline this morning when it comes to dealing with failure, surviving failure, identify the places where you have experienced failure. Now sometimes it's pretty easy to identify the places where other people have experienced failure. Often we can see that pretty clearly. We might even point it out. But we need to look at our own lives and see where we have personally experienced failure. Look at this verse from the book of Proverbs again. He who conceals his sins does not prosper 
But whoever confesses and renounces them finds what? Finds God's mercy. Facing the failure in your life is not an easy thing to do. And part of the reason for that is that we live in a culture where there is often little patience for people who fail. I mean, think about sports again, because in America we love winners and we kind of hate losers. What happens to a sports franchise if they have a losing season? What happens to ticket sales? Yeah, they plummet. And if there's a player who doesn't live up to expectations, a player who fails, often fans become fault finders. Nobody wants to be labeled as a failure. And as a result, one of our greatest fears is the fear of failure. We, we say, what's going to happen to me if I fail? What, what are people going to think of me? Am I going to be unloved, unwanted? And the fear of failure impacts us in ways that we may not even be aware of. Sometimes the fear of failure makes us indecisive and we have a hard time choosing which path to follow. Sometimes that fear of failure causes us to, to work and work and work and we're afraid if we just disengage for a little time that we're going to fail. Other times that fear of failure causes us to pretend that we're better than we actually are because we just don't want to face our faults. But a very important step in dealing with failure is to identify where you personally have failed. As I was working on the message this week, I realized that what I needed to do was exactly that. That I needed to take some time and just think about, pray about places where I failed. And I started by thinking about how I failed as a husband. And my wife Chris and I have been married for, for a lot of years, but I came face to face with the reality that it is easy for me sometimes just to focus more on my needs than on the needs of my wife. It's easy for me to be self-centered. And I thought about this, my, my failure as, as a dad. We have three adult children, and I thought about the times as our kids were growing up where my love for them needed to be more tender, and other times when my love needed to be more tough. And I thought about times when, when my kids needed me to step into a situation, to step into their lives and, and provide some strong spiritual leadership, but instead of stepping in, I remained on the sidelines. And I thought about this, um, ways that I've failed as your pastor. Times that I've relied more on myself instead of relying on God, on his strength, on his wisdom. And I know this, when you, when you actually reflect on your failure, it's, it's difficult, it's painful. But it's absolutely critical if you want to move beyond that failure. And so, when we do this, when we actually reflect on our failure, it enables us to do this, to recognize the benefits of failure. Now, there are three benefits that I want to point out this morning, and here is the first, that God uses failure to educate us. God uses failure to educate me. This is a verse from Psalm 119. My troubles turned out all for the best. Why? They forced me to learn from your textbook. That textbook is the Bible itself. God can use failure to teach us many things. And church, here's the reality. When you fail, failure can be a tyrant. A tyrant that weighs you down with guilt and regret and shame and fear, the fear that you're going to fail again. Or failure can be a teacher. And you learn from your failure and you grow. And you, and you figure out what to do going forward so that you don't fail in the same way. 
And the reality is this. We get to choose what role we will assign our failure. Now let's assume that we're going to allow failure to be our teacher. What does failure teach us? Well, one of the things that failure teaches us is who we are. Because when we fail, we come face to face with the reality, hey, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. I have fallen into this temptation. I cannot overcome this addiction. I can't change my own heart. Failure, as somebody said, introduces a person to themselves. But failure does more than that. Failure teaches us about God. Because when you hit the wall, when you're up against this crisis of failure, which sometimes precipitates a crisis of faith, you're looking for answers, you're looking for hope, you're looking for forgiveness and redemption. And where do you find those things? By going to God. Now, here's another benefit of failure. God also uses failure to motivate me. God uses failure to motivate me. This is a verse from Proverbs again. Sometimes it takes a painful situation to make us change our ways. I've shared this quote before from Pastor Rick Warren. He says this, we don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. And there is no heat like the heat of failure. And one of the things that God does with our failure is use it to move us toward being the person that he created us to be because failure can enable us to, to move in an entirely different direction. So what are some of the benefits? What's the first benefit of failure? God uses it to do what? To educate us. And what's the second benefit? To motivate us. And here's the third. God uses failure to develop my character. This is from the book of Romans. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, including failure, for we know that they are good for us. They help us learn to endure. And endurance develops strength of character in us. Now here's what I want you to do. When you come here on a Sunday morning and you hear a message, that's a good thing. But sometimes people will ask me, well, how did your message go? And here's my typical response, time will tell. Because God doesn't want us just to listen to his word. He wants us to do what? Put it into practice. So I want to encourage you to do this. Every week on the back of your outline, there's a devotional guide. As you work through that devotional guide this week, I want to encourage you to take some time and just reflect, prayerfully reflect on failures in your life. And think about what you've learned from them. And I hope that, that that time of reflection will motivate you to do things differently because here's the reality. If we're going to move toward the future and experience change, our heart has to be transformed. And that's exactly what God desires. And I've experienced this. When I go through a time of failure, God's working on my character. And often failure is something that, that softens our heart and makes us more sensitive to other people. I shared a story in first service, and I just briefly mentioned this last week, and it has to do with a, a cell phone. I was bragging to my wife. I said, you know what, honey? I said, I've had, this is a couple of years ago, I've had this cell phone for years, and there's hardly a scratch on it. I mean, I take such excellent care of my cell phone. I don't even have a case on it. I don't drop it. I don't damage it. And, and so she's going, yeah, okay. Anyway, shortly thereafter, we were in South Carolina, and I opened the car door. The cell phone falls out. I didn't realize it. I kept backing up, and you guessed it. I backed over the cell phone and crushed it. So I'm thinking, oh, this is great. So I take my cell phone, put it in my pocket, and then I tell Chris, hey, listen, um, how would you like to go to the, uh, the Apple store in Augusta? 
She goes, well, why do we need to go there? I said, this is the reason. I have destroyed my cell phone. My iPhone's dead. And in that moment, I just realized that, you know, when things like that happen, God is always on the lookout for how he can change our heart. And so the next time my wife dropped her cell phone, I didn't say a word. <laughs> Not a single word. And I realized that, that failure in, in so many ways can give us a heart that is more kind, a heart that is less proud, a heart that is less judgmental. And that's exactly what God wants to happen. Well, here's the final way to survive failure. Number four, get up and try again depending on God's grace. Get up and try again depending on God's grace. When I think of somebody who is the ultimate survivor when it comes to failure, this is uh, a character from my childhood that I think about. Now, how, how many of you know who that is who just left the cliff? Who is that? That is Wiley Coyote. And who is the character sticking his tongue out at Wiley Coyote? Yeah, Beep Beep the Roadrunner. And in his quest, his never-ending quest to capture Beep Beep the Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote has failed more time than Thomas Edison trying to invent a light bulb. But here's the deal. He never gives up. And I think about all the cartoons that I watched with my brother and my sister. You know, an anvil would drop on Wiley Coyote. And the next, next scene, he's up. He's after the roadrunner. He just refuses to stay down. He keeps getting up. And I thought about this verse of Scripture that I want to show you because this is a powerful verse. It says this, For though a righteous man or a woman falls seven times, he does what? Or she does what? Yeah, rises again, gets back up, and keeps on going. Now, this is really interesting. In the Hebrew culture, the number seven is a special number because it, it denotes completeness or perfection. And so the idea here is if you stumble and fall seven times, you're a complete failure. You're an absolute failure. And this verse says, look, even if you're an absolute failure, a complete failure, what can you do? You can get up. You can rise again. And, and there is such an enormous difference between looking in the mirror and saying, I'm a failure... We're saying, I have failed seven times. I may have failed completely, but by God's grace, I can get up and I can try again. And I think, too, when you look at this topic of failure, that one of the, one of the ways that God uses failure is to show us how much we need Him. Because I'll tell you this, when I've experienced failure and I bring that failure to God, I end up on my knees. And this verse points out just how important that is. It says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what's one of the most famous hymns? Amazing what? Grace. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. You see, if you're going to experience this amazing grace, you have to come to terms with your own failure. Isn't that true? And that's what the Bible reminds us of, that all of us have failed. That we've done this, this moral belly flop from the high dive of life. And that's painful. And God wants to use that pain to move us toward him. But we've got to come to this place of realizing, yes, God, I have failed. I have sinned against you. And I understand that you're a holy God. And that my sin, my moral failure separates us. This relationship that you want isn't even possible unless something changes. 
And you realize that because God is just, he's got to punish every sin you've ever committed. And that just punishment, according to the Bible, is to die and be separated from God for how long? Forever. And here's, here's the reality. We can't do anything in and of ourselves to change that. We are helpless and hopeless unless God steps in. And that's why we have to put on our gospel glasses and realize that's exactly what God has done. Because God, this is really important, church. God loves you despite your failure. God loves me despite all my failure. And I don't just hope that's the case. I know that's the case because of the story. At Christmas time, whose birth do we celebrate? Jesus Christ. And Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, he comes to our world. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God who exists in three persons. And Jesus lives what kind of life? Yeah, does he ever fail? No. He lives the life that we couldn't live, and because of that, he is now qualified to offer his life in exchange for ours. And that's what happens on the cross. Jesus allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be beaten. He allows himself to be crucified. Remember they taunt Jesus and say, hey, if you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. Could Jesus have come down? Just like that. But he remained on the cross because he was paying for our moral failure, because this is what God did. God was willing to put our sin on Jesus. Every failure that we've ever committed, those in the past, those that we are going through today, those in the future, all of our sin, all of our failure was placed on Jesus, and he died. And the wrath of God against our sin was poured out on Christ instead of us. And then Jesus comes back to life, and he says, hey, look, if you want to find a way to deal with your failure, if you want to be forgiven, then come to me. Trust me, follow me. And when you do that, an amazing thing happens. And, and this, again, is why we need to over and over again go back to the gospel. We need to, to tell the gospel to ourselves. And here's why. If you're a Christian this morning, and, and you've heard me say this so many times, you are guilt-free in the eyes of God. Your past has been settled. You are completely forgiven. Now, sometimes we have a very hard time getting over failure. Some of you are just wired that way. And we just go on for years and years, and it takes a long time to process that. In God's eyes, the minute you trust Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. When God looks at you, it's as if you've never sinned. And the news gets even better because when you look at yourself through the lens of the gospel, you realize that you have a new identity. God doesn't see you as a failure. He sees you as his daughter. He sees you as his son. He sees you as somebody that he's invited and adopted into his family. And that's a different way of looking at yourself. You have this new identity in Christ. And not only that, but when you trust Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives in you. And this is a mystery. It really is. But when Jesus lives in you, you have a new potential. You can do things that you could never do before. And why is this so important when you deal with failure? Because when God says, hey, get up. He's not asking us to get up in our own strength. He's not asking us to go forward in our own wisdom. He's saying, I'm not only with you, I am in you, enabling you to have a new beginning. Now, I know this, that in a room with this many people, there's a lot of collective failure. I mean, the stories we could tell, right? Looking back of the times that we've failed, and maybe today, right at this moment, you're walking through that fog of failure. 
And I know this from personal experience. When you're going through a time of failure, sometimes it's hard to see the hand of God. But I want you to know this morning, God is here. God is present by His Spirit. And God is doing this. He's reaching out to you. And He's saying, bring your failure to me. Bring your broken heart and your broken dreams to me. And church, we need to remember that our God is a God of hope and our God is a God of healing. And I'm so thankful that God has placed stories in this book that remind us of that very thing. I was thinking as I was working on the message that there are two disciples, two followers of Jesus, of the original 12, who have completely different stories about failure. Now, one of them is very well known both inside and out the church. This is the disciple who betrayed Jesus Christ. And what is his name? Yeah, Judas. Judas Iscariot. Now, we know, according to the story here, that when, when Jesus was arrested, when he was going through this mockery of a trial, at some point Judas realized that Jesus had been condemned and his heart was broken. The, the Bible says that he was filled with remorse. In fact, he took those 30 pieces of silver, that blood money, and he tried to give it back to the religious leaders and they didn't want to have anything to do with Judas. They said, hey, buddy, you're on your own. Now, Judas failed, and we all failed, but what did he do with his failure? Well, Scripture tells us that, that Judas actually said to the religious leaders, I have sinned, for I have betrayed an innocent man. And instead of taking that sorrow and that failure to God, Judas ran in the other direction and took his own life. For him, failure was a tyrant that weighed him down with guilt and regret and shame and caused him to take a self-destructive path. And as I was reading that story this week, I couldn't help but think about all the situations that I've personally been involved with when it comes to people either attempting to end their life or actually succeeding in doing so. And in the years that I was a firefighter and a paramedic, I've been on so many rescue calls where people have, have decided to end their life. And as a pastor, the very first funeral I did in our church was for a man who took his life. And I've read the, the notes that people leave behind, and, and often there are two words in those notes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I couldn't go on. I'm sorry I let you down. I'm sorry I did this. And, and Scripture tells us this, that there is a sorrow that leads to death. But it quickly goes on to say this, but there is a different kind of sorrow, a godly sorrow, that leads to life, that leads to repentance, that, that leaves no regrets. And we see a, an example of that in the life of another disciple, because he failed miserably too, but his failure took him in an entirely different direction. Max Licato wrote about this story, and he said this, The sun was in the water before Peter noticed it a wavy circle of gold on the surface of the sea. A fisherman is usually the first to spot the sun rising over the crest of the hills. It means his night of labor is almost over. But not for this fisherman. Though the light reflected on the lake, the darkness lingered in Peter's heart. The wind chilled, but he didn't feel it. His friends slept soundly, but he didn't care. The nets at his feet were empty. The sea had been a miser, but Peter wasn't thinking about that. His thoughts were far from the Sea of Galilee. His mind was in Jerusalem. 
reliving an anguished night. As the boat rocked, his memories raced. The clanking of the Roman guard, the flash of a sword, a severed ear, soldiers leading Jesus away. What was I thinking, Peter mumbled to himself as he stared at the bottom of the boat. Why did I run? Peter had run. He had turned his back on his dearest friend and run. We don't know where. Peter may not have known where. He found a hole, a hut, an abandoned shed. He found a place to hide and he hid. He had bragged, everyone else may desert you, but I will not. Yet he did. Peter did what he swore he wouldn't do. He had tumbled headfirst into the pit of his own fears, and there he sat. All he could hear was his hollow promise. Everyone else may desert you, but I will not. Everyone else, but I will not. I will not. A war raged within the fishermen. At that moment, the instinct to survive collided with his allegiance to Christ. And for just one moment, that allegiance won. Peter stood and stepped out of hiding and followed the noise till he saw the torch-lit jury in the courtyard of Caiaphas the high priest. He stopped near a fire and warmed his hands. The fire sparked with irony. The night had been cold, the fire was hot, but Peter was neither. He was lukewarm. Peter followed at a distance, the gospel writer tells us. He was loyal from a distance. That night he went close enough to see, but not close enough to be seen. Problem was, Peter was seen. Other people near the fire recognized him. You were with him, they challenged. You were with the Nazarene. Three times people said it. Three times Peter denied it. Three times Jesus heard it. Please understand that the main character in this drama of denial is not Peter, but Jesus. Jesus, who knows the hearts of all people, knew the denial of his friend. Three times the salt of Peter's denial stung the wounds of the Messiah. How do I know that Jesus knew? Because of what he did. The Bible says, Then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. When the rooster crowed, Jesus turned. His eyes searched for Peter, and they found him. At that moment, there were no soldiers, no accusers, no priests. At that pre-dawn moment in Jerusalem, there were only two people, Jesus and Peter. Years ago, Peter had turned his back on the sea to follow the Messiah. He had left the boats thinking that he would never return. But now, he's back. Full circle, same sea, same spot, same boat. But this isn't the same Peter. Three years of living with Jesus have changed him. He's seen too much, too many walking cripples, too many vacated graves, too many hours hearing the Messiah's words. Why did he return? What brought him back to Galilee after the crucifixion? Despair? Some think so. I don't. Hope dies hard for a man who has known Jesus. I think that's what Peter had. That's what brought him back. Hope. A bizarre hope that on the sea where he knew him first, he would know him again. So, Peter's in the boat, on the lake. Once again, he's fished all night. Once again, the sea has surrendered nothing. His thoughts are interrupted by a shout from the shore. Catch any fish? Peter and John look up, probably a villager. No, they yell back. Try the other side, the voice returns. John looks at Peter. What can it hurt? So out sails the net. Peter wraps the rope around his wrist to wait, but there is no wait. 
the rope pulls taut and the net catches. Peter sets his weight against the side of the boat and begins to bring in the net, reaching down, pulling up, reaching down, pulling up. He's so intense with the task, he misses the message. But John doesn't. The moment is deja vu. This has happened before. The long night, the empty net, the call to cast again, fish flapping on the floor of the boat. Wait a minute. He lifts his eyes to the man on the shore. It's, it's him, he whispers. Then louder, it's Jesus. Then shouting, it's the Lord, Peter, it's the Lord. Peter turns and looks. Jesus has come. Not just Jesus, the teacher, but Jesus, the death defeater. Jesus, the king. Jesus, the victor over darkness. Jesus, the God of heaven and earth, is on the shore. And he's building a fire. Peter plunges into the water, swims to the shore, and stumbles out wet and shivering and stands in front of the friend he betrayed. Jesus has prepared a bed of coals. Both are aware of the last time Peter stood in front of a fire. His deliberate denial of Jesus, not once but three times, Peter had failed God, but now God had come to him. For one of the few times in his life, Peter is silent. What words would suffice? The moment is too holy for words. God is offering breakfast to the friend who betrayed him, and Peter is once again finding grace at Galilee. What do you say at a moment like this? It's just you and God. You and God both know what you did, and neither one of you is proud of it. What do you do? You might consider doing what Peter did. Stand in God's presence. Stand in God's sight. Stand still and wait. Sometimes that's all a soul can do. Too repentant to speak. Too hopeful to leave. We just stand. So stand amazed. He has come back. And he invites you to try again, this time, with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful story of Peter and how you moved him from failure. Lord, how you brought him full circle, back to the beginning, back to those words that he first heard you speak, Lord, follow me. And God, today, for those of us who have failed in the past and, and still carry regret or guilt or shame, Father, may we hear those words of Jesus again, follow me. May we understand that because of Jesus, we are forgiven. And God, I pray for the person who maybe for the first time is understanding that they've never trusted Christ, they've never taken their failure and their pain to Jesus. And I pray that today would be the time, a day that changes everything for them. And Father, I, I know that you are always extending your hand to us, inviting us to come to you and believe. And I pray for the person this morning who just really, really needs to do that, who needs a new life, who needs forgiveness, who, leads, who needs to move beyond failure, that they in their heart would say, God, oh God, I need you. I failed you and I failed other people. I failed myself. But I know that Jesus died so that I could be forgiven. And so God, today I just want to tell you that I, I trust him. I believe that he died for me. And I want to follow him, give my life to him. 
God, what freedom there is in trusting Christ. What joy. God, I pray this for those of us who have decided to to walk with Jesus, that today, Lord, you'd help us to see ourselves through gospel glasses. God, help us to know that because of the gospel, we have nothing to prove because Jesus has done it all. God, remind us that we have nothing to hide, that we have nothing to fear, including failure. Because today, right now, we are the children of God.